You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Everybody, buongiorno, ni hao, motherfuckers, konnichiwa, bitches. My name is Jason Almy, and I want to welcome you with those profane words to another episode of Abakabu Cafe. This is the podcast where we talk about nothing but Orange Road. That's it, Kimagore Orange Road, all day, every day. And today, we're going to be talking about episode five of the television series, A Secret for Two, A Problematic Part-Time Job. Originally, this episode aired on May the 4th of 1987. It was directed by Matsuzono Hiroshi and, guess who's back, written by Terada Kenji. I guess he was sick last week. I don't know what was up, but Terada Kenji is back. Everybody. He made it. This is the first of many episodes that begin in media res. This feels... um, Less contemplative than the previous episodes. We kind of start into this madcap dash that that Casca is going through, and we really know nothing about. We just kind of see him going through this um, kind of extreme dash across town, uh, narrowly escaping death. It feels a little bit more shonen. I mean, it feels like something that belongs a little bit more in Shonen Jump or something like that. We cut back to explain Casca's motivation, and that occurs after the sequence of him running across town. Um, and his motivation is a misunderstanding, which, of course, abound in this series. I mean, half of these episodes wouldn't be possible if there wasn't some crazy misunderstanding that really shouldn't have been. That's what it is. He thinks Karu is about to jump to her death into a river, and somehow she's calling him, right? She... She kind of calls Kasuga. He can hear the river, so he assumes that she's going to jump into it because she sounds all distressed. This was 1987. She didn't have a cell phone, so I guess she's calling him from a payphone that's like right by the river. I don't really feel like they thought that one through, but it is what it is. And in this scene, I love Uma and Ushko. 
they're like normal people here. They're capable still of being traumatized by the gang. Typically, Kasuga is the one who's traumatizing Umao and Ushiko. And I've got to say, I love it. They have some really crazy appearances in future episodes where it's like they're the ones doing the traumatizing of others. But here, they're just normal kind of maybe young married couple or something like that. And, and Kasuga is able to just spook the shit out of them. Uh, but they, they get a little bit weird as time goes on too. They, uh, they lean into the weirdness, but here uh, they're, they're sufficiently traumatized by Kasuga. Uh, Kasuga comes upon Hishikata's shoes on the bridge. He, he knows he's at the right bridge because he sees a pair of shoes that has been left neatly by the, side of the road uh right at the edge of the bridge where one might jump in which i didn't get i i don't i mean again i'm a westerner and i am not um well super well versed i'm not as well versed in the japanese culture as someone like cat who lives in japan and has done for a long time but i understand the japanese place high value in being unobtrusive and not bothering other people with with their own private personal matters not burdening others but i mean as long as you're committing suicide right you might as well leave your shoes on i i don't i don't get the idea of of popping your shoes off let me leave them here very neatly no suicide note but i'm just going to position my shoes very neatly and brush them off a little bit then i'll jump myself to my to my death i don't i don't get it uh but it is what it is and this is a this is a notable scene of course, they they use caricature and hyperbole very effectively here throughout this sequence to uh, play up the the elements of this uh, madcap dash across town to find Shikaru, and then you know he's almost getting run over. Casca's almost getting run over. Um, th- this guy almost hits him right, calls him an asshole, and then peels off as Casca finds Shikaru-chan's shoes. These are things that would happen in real life. If you dart into the road and a car has to slam on his brakes and swerve in order to not hit you, chances are good he's going to call you an asshole, if not worse, and then he's going to drive away feeling very angry at you for almost splattering yourself all over his hood. So that's understandable, but when you're watching this animation sequence here, as this guy peels away, when you're paying attention to the animation, you'll notice that the car tips backward onto the back two wheels. Uh, this driver's angered haste is so intense that he hits that gas so hard, he just mashes that gas so hard that the front two wheels come off the ground. This is not something that happens in real life. This is an example of where animation kind of excels at this hyperbole uh, this kind of caricature that they're they're taking something that really exists and they're sort of dialing it to 11 to borrow from spinal tap they dial it all the way to 11 and it manages to convey this guy's like angry haste and it's it's a decision that they make in the in the um animation of the episode to animate this car behaving in this cartoonish way i'm sorry guys i know this is an anime and most anime fans, they don't want it to be called a cartoon, but again, this is a, I mean, cartoonish in the sense that there is this uh, unreal, unreal quality 
to the way things might move because a car is not really going to do that in real life. You can't mash the gas so hard that the front two wheels are going to come up off the ground. I mean, we're talking about a standard Honda. We're not talking about something that's been souped up or, or something like that. So, so we get animation that's not meant to accurately represent a thing with complete faithfulness to reality. This isn't photorealism here. Instead, we get imagery that is meant to communicate an idea. Here it's the driver's angered haste. This type of animation actually subtly enhances the comedic value of the sequence, and it makes it seem more madcap. It's a, it's a deliberate technique that they, they employ with the animation in order to make this whole sequence, dial this whole sequence up, kind of add that adrenaline factor and, and make it funny, make it not serious. I mean, watching somebody get run over is pretty traumatic. Watching someone almost get run over is kind of frightening, but if you can do it in this animated way, then you can find comedy in what would otherwise be a pretty serious uh, scenario. You don't want to get hit by a car. One thing I love in this scene is the busload of people that pull up and the bus like stops. I don't know if it was like a red light or whatever, the stop sign, but this busload of people, just absolute busload of people. Like how much more embarrassing could you make it? Like if it was two people in a car and they pull up, then it's a little embarrassing because there's two people, but it's like this busload packed to the brim. People are leaning out the windows as Shikaru is leaning into Kasuga. And so they're all shouting this encouragement at him, like way to go and stuff like that. Don't go breaking her heart and all this stuff. And the animators, again, they, they, they make these deliberate choices in the way that the animation is rendered. Shikaru's face is drawn in a way that tells the viewer that she's actually rather pleased with herself as she leans into Kasuga's embrace. She's, she was acting previously, she was acting upset over Ayukawa and this revelation that she has. But here when she leans into Kasuga and all the people in the bus start, uh, cat calling them sort of, and, and hollering at them and whooping and stuff, she's smiling subtly. Her eyes are closed in that kind of peaceful way that they render. They're not scrunched up like she's sobbing or distressed. You know how, you know, you might close your eyes if you're crying and they get scrunched up, your brow furrows, but but this way, she's got that sort of um, peaceful kind of her eyes are closed. She's got a slight smile on her face. And it's obvious that she's getting what she wants here. We don't see Shikaru tell Kasuga what's upsetting her. Instead, we cut to the next scene, and Kasuga is, he's already been informed. Shikaru has already told him everything uh, about what she witnessed, and it's weighing on him in this very next scene. We get this cut. It's almost a little jarring because we don't see what transpires for the rest of his conversation with Shikaru. It, we, we just cut to him waiting for this train. He's, he's contemplating what a problem it is. He's lost in thought. He's, he's being weighed down now by this problem, looking super grim. And we see him from the other side of uh, some train tracks as this train whizzes by. So this train, of course, contributes noise to the scene. There's the sound the train makes, but then the filmmakers are also moving the camera about shakily to kind of imitate how a real camera or POV shot might be affected by a giant train barreling between it and the subject, which is Kasuga. So if there's a train going by, this massive thing is kind of shaking the, the camera. And you know, obviously, they didn't have to animate it that way. They didn't have to move the frame around and create this... Um, pretty effective facsimile of this shaking of this movement of this massive train going by. But 
this reinforces the train's, like this train's massive because the camera's shaking. It reinforces the train's mass even as Kasuga himself is feeling the weight of Hikaru's revelation. Whatever it was, we don't know what it was yet as the viewer, but we know that he is feeling burdened by this. It's really a brilliant filmmaking choice. These visuals that we're seeing tie directly into Casca's internal conflict that he's feeling at this time. And we don't even know what's causing it yet as the viewer, but we know it's serious. And part of that is because there's a train whizzing by. The weight of Hikaru's revelation is so great, in fact, that Casca doesn't even notice when the train is gone. And it's, He's clear to walk again. We do see, we do finally see uh, Shikaru's flashback. It's given this vignette-style blur around the edges of the screen that tells us, as the viewer, that this is Kasuga's kind of mind's eye. He's hearing this secondhand. I mean, he didn't witness this event directly. So what we're seeing is uh, sort of filtered through this, this mind's eye. We know we're being told by the filmmakers, without being told, we're being told that this is a flashback, that this is Shikaru relating the story via this vignette across the screen or around the edges of the screen. Unlike a lot of the misunderstandings that happen in this show, to me, this one makes a lot of sense. Ayukawa is dressed very, very nicely. She's not dressed casually at all. Master is dressed very sharp too. He's got the suit. He's got the tie. Then they go into a f***ing hotel. Honestly, I would have assumed the same shit Shikaru did. What are you doing when you dress up and go into a hotel, dog? It's Friday night. You ain't going there for a conference. I really love the dynamic between Kurumi and, and um, Takashi, her father. It's almost like more examples of this elder abuse that I was t- talking about in a previous episode, two episodes ago, I believe. So there's this humor generated from Kurumi's overexcitement, causing her to hug her dad so hard that he's unable to breathe. You know, it's it, it's supposed to be funny. She's choking him, right? She's like so excited that she's hugging him so hard that she's choking him. That's a source of this this kind of pratfallish physical comedy. But in my opinion, it's actually another example of this intergenerational conflict metaphor between Takashi and his kids, especially Kurumi. They get what they want and they rule that house with an iron fist. Even after Kasuga returns home, his father's waving the tickets to Hokkaido and they're explaining that they're going on vacation. Takashi is still holding his neck. You know, she wasn't choking him because she's trying to, I don't know, exert herself over him. I think it was very subconscious. Again, the same reason why in the previous episode of the television series, Kurumi started that rumor that was ripping through school that was causing Kasuka so much distress. She didn't do it in in an effort to be a troublemaker. She wasn't trying to stir shit up, as I said last week. But here, I don't think she's trying to intimidate her father but it's this um old versus new thing that that is a a pretty consistent thematic um element of kimagure orange road that you have all of these main characters who are very young and they're part of this new generation and then you have uh the older characters who are more meant to represent the uh patriarchal established order and and so there's oftentimes a little bit of comedy at at the expense of these older established patriarchal characters. In this case, Takashi is sort of paying the dues of this comedic sequence. Uh, he's the one getting choked, and he is also on the the uh, more traditional, the older generation, the patriarchal end 
of, of that relationship too. So it's, it's like the younger generation, the generation that's coming up, they sort of get a one up on the older folks. And, and this is an interesting example of that because it's very, very subtle. Um, what really comes across in that scene is that it's funny that she's hugging him too hard. Now, Kasuga throughout this, throughout this show, even thus far, even in a few episodes, he's frequently imagining Ayukawa falling into his embrace. She leans in for a kiss, et cetera. Like in uh, the opening dream sequence of episode two, here he actually indulges his insecurities a bit by imagining her acting coldly to him, rebuffing him. While doing so, she's holding cigarettes that make her seem older and that's working in concert with Kasuga's assumption that she's having these adult relations, that she's engaged in this adult relationship, this sexual, very sexual relationship that's elevating her to, to beyond, um, beyond his level. Immediately, immediately after this, uh, this sequence of him imagining her rebuffing him, Kasuga um, has this flashback of calling Ayukawa from the previous episode. It's a little jarring, actually, at first. This is another cut that's a little bit like they go from one narrative element, he's imagining something immediately to another that's not him imagining it, but him, him recollecting something that happened the previous week. And so the cut was a little bit like, what's going on here at first for the first couple of seconds? And I think, I think the purpose of this, though, is for Kasuga to compare his innocent fumblings with Shikaru from the previous week when they were doing the coffee together and accidentally touched each other's hands and it was kind of, you know, they're blushing and stuff like that. He's comparing this sort of innocent first time, very virginal fumblings with Shikaru to, to Ayukawa's situation. And, and she in Kasuga's mind is well beyond that phase. Now she's at the point of sleeping with older men, she's going into hotels to have sex with older men in Kasuga's brain, at least. And here he is this kid who blushes when he touches a girl's hand and he's just, he's so far behind her. And I think this sequence was, was placed here to show us that this is on his mind. He's having this flashback now because he very much sees this disparity between where Ayukawa is developmentally and where he is developmentally. Thus, she seems unapproachable to him. Hence his retreat from her front lawn. He he was like marching up to her front door when he had that flashback and then decided he needed to split like he couldn't face Ayukawa. At this point, we get a lovely little piece of uh, background music that we'll hear throughout the show, uh, but I think this might be the first uh, instance of it. And it's just, it's a great little piece of music. That is called Yogiri no Shinobi Ashi. Shinobi is stealth. I just call it the sneaky, sneaky song. It's the sneaky, sneaky music. Kasuga, of course, is trying to hide from Ayuko while, while this plays. He's following her across town. We get to hear this stealthy little song as he hides behind things. When she looks over her shoulder, he's like trying to quickly get behind the telephone pole or whatever. It's good stuff. Good stuff right there. As he's following Ayukawa through town, we get this 
wonderful scene that's going to reinforce one of my earlier points from a moment ago. This old man ogles Ayukawa. He's an elderly guy, probably 70s, maybe. So the purpose, again, like with the Takashi scene where he's getting choked by Kurumi, the purpose of this scene is firstly comedy. His wife reacts to this guy. Watch what you're saying. She yanks the, the, the cane, and then she starts beating the guy with the cane, right? It's supposed to be funny. But she emasculates him publicly. I mean, she's like hitting him. He's like on the ground, and she's hitting him in the ass with this cane. So it, it, secondly, it reinforces Kasuga's fear that Ayukawa is very much desired by these older men, even ones in their 70s. And Kasuga feels ill-equipped to compete with these older men, but then it also helps to, again, it's this generational thing where this um, older guy is is kind of being emasculated for comedy and the younger characters are um, going on about their day. They're kind of untouched by this. And um, Casca is not very well equipped to compete with these older men. We see the next moment he imagines the older man that Ayukawa is supposedly sleeping with able to treat Ayukawa to things by her lavish gifts. And Koska just doesn't feel like he's on that level. He doesn't have a job. He's not able to buy things for anyone or treat Ayukawa to, to nice things. Get whatever you want. Don't worry about it. Put it in the bag, etc. In this episode, of course, Koska is played for a lot of physical comedy. He has to avoid being run over at least three times in this episode. He's got that whole first chase, initial chase scene where he's doing that madcap dash across town to try to get to Shikaru before she kills herself. Then he's sneaking behind Ayukua, trying not to be seen, but at the same time, trying not to get run over when he when he has to hide from her or use the power. Given that Kasuga is a proxy for Matsumoto, the author of the manga, creator of all these characters, and given that Matsumoto's cerebrospinal fluid leak stemmed from being hit by a car when he was three years old, I wonder how watching this episode must have made him feel. Because honestly, if it was me, if I was in Matsumoto's shoes, I'd kind of be like, uh, f*** y'all. Here we get a glimpse, an early glimpse of Orange Street. This is presumably where Abakabu is located. Is there a significance to the Orange Street being the location of Abakabu? Or is this a reference to one of Matsumoto's earlier works he had a uh, a one shot a short work called panic on orange street prior to making kimagure orange road the manga so this might actually be a, a a subtle nod towards that earlier work that was no doubt influential on uh matsumoto's work in the the manga of, of kimagure orange road so it might have a dual purpose here that we're identifying the orange road but then we're also giving a nod to to work that came before and preceded this. Now, Kasuga finds Ayukawa's workplace completely by chance as he's running from the cop, which I love. I love that he runs from a cop. That's that's pretty badass. But it seems like dumb luck is one of his powers. This guy falls ass backwards into every good situation he's ever been in. I know he can teleport. I know he can move things with his mind. He can do some other cool. He can switch bodies with people by banging them in the head. But... I, I think dumb luck has to be added to his list of powers because this guy, dumb luck, is definitely one of his powers. I got to wonder again, WTF, where are the GD parents? Kasuga is 
like 15, he gets to stay at home alone for a week or some shit while his dad and sisters are out of town. This guy's just home alone for a week. Ayukawa is getting drunk. She's staying out. Maybe not as big a deal. She seems like a latchkey kid. I know her parents are always traveling and stuff, but so at least they try to explain why Ayukawa is an adult de facto. She's not, and they make a big deal out of the fact that she's a teenager, but for all intents and purposes, as they say. Uh, but I feel like if I'm traveling, I, like give me a call or something. You know, I'm not leaving you at home. You got to give me a call at eight o'clock, nine o'clock. I got to know you're okay. And then Masters just watching his 15 year old employees getting drunk like it's no biggie. Like he's not liable. Like, I don't know if they've got that same type of liability in 1980s Japan. But even as a young person watching this, when I was 15 watching this for the first time, I was just thinking, no way, this doesn't happen in the real world. 15 year olds just drinking booze. And their boss just being like, yeah, okay, you guys lock up. 15-year-olds drinking booze is going to lock up. Yeah, I don't know about that. There's another where are the parents moment. I've always felt like they need to balance the relative adult-like freedom that these characters have. They're, they are very, very free. They have an adult-like freedom, but they also have to be naive. They have to be inexperienced in order for a lot of these narratives to work. And for a lot of these themes that are trying to be expressed through the show, in order for them to work, these characters have to be kind of innocent. They have to have their innocent fumblings. They have to have their insecurities. And if they're adults, they're going to be more grizzled and less innocent. But at the same time, it's also always been kind of tough for me to watch 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds go to clubs, go out, stay out all night. I mean, Never call their parents. Who knows what's going on? It just, it always seemed a little crazy to me. Maybe it's the dissonance, but um, it's just always something that that stood out a little bit when they're essentially being adults without being adults. Like, we got school tomorrow. I, mean, I don't know. I got drunk on a school night, I'm sure. So uh, this is an important episode because it caps some of this interpersonal drama that we've been building up in these past few episodes. Kasuga gets closer to Ayukawa, so he actually gets to spend some time doing some real stuff with her, and they now share a secret. But really, they shared a secret before this because they both withheld their, quote, date from Shikaru. Ayukawa lets her guard down with Kasuga. That's also important. A, she gets drunk. B, she asks if she can sleep over at his place, promises not to tell Shikaru that would be C. D, she passes out like on his chest slash shoulder, like leaning into him. If, if those four things in concert are not vulnerable, I don't know what is. She's, this is a, I think this is a tremendously important episode. And there is this tonal shift that occurs in this episode as the first half is more... Um, physical comedy, madcap dashes, or trying to follow someone stealthily and not get run over, but but keep having these kind of close calls to generate this humor, make the audience laugh. The back half of this episode really, uh, th- this is a layered episode because the back half of this episode really provides some good stuff, more contemplative stuff, some deeper stuff. And that brings us to the next little piece of music that I want to play.
back to the red straw hat time. I don't even know what that means. It's a reference to the red straw hat from the first episode, of course. But it's a great piece of music that plays during that last scene as Kasuga and Ayukawa are sitting on the bench together just before they realize, just after they realize that the uh, the last bus is not coming because it's a holiday and the bus schedule is um, amended for the holiday. And this is when she asks him to sleep over at his place. And it's just, it's kind of a monumental moment, uh, early, uh, monumental early moment in the show. And uh, this is, this is what we're gifted with during that scene. And Honestly, I was talking about the back half of this episode being so great, but there are some really great visuals in the back half of this episode, too. Um, that first half, again, I, I mentioned the madcap dashes, the more physical humor. It's got a lot of what I like to call Looney Tunes-like animation. These are like expressive hyper-exaggerations of things like facial expressions, the way that car moved that I discussed at length. The back half is more subdued. All of these exteriors are nighttime. After he finds out about the part-time job, we don't see any more daytime scenes where we only see exteriors at nighttime. Street lamps are on, headlights are going by, all of the abacabu signage is turning off at the end of the night. So, I mean, it's this really lovely animation and it sets this mood that they build up to in the back half of the episode. There's something about that night setting that enhances this theme of intimacy inherent in sharing a secret. There's something intimate about knowing something about somebody else and them knowing something about you that you're not supposed to tell other people and that you guys are just keeping it to yourselves. The way they animated Ayukawa just before she invites herself over to Kasuga, as you can tell from his point of view that he's sort of eyeing her. The camera sort of travels up her body, kind of from uh, her legs and hips up her body to her face as she's sort of smiling at Kasuga. So then she invites herself over, and as she's doing so, the camera has to cut between their faces. It has to show her face as she's asking, his face as he's hearing kind of dumbstruck by her her request. But instead of using a more traditional cut back and forth, like you'd use in a conversation between two people, especially a, a snippy, kind of snappy, witty conversation, instead of using cuts like that, they use a dissolve. They dissolve from her face to his. So it's not as harsh as a cut, right? So it helps to preserve this sense of intimacy, but it also has the effect of superimposing their faces atop one another for several frames. You see her face melt into his. Their faces are kind of existing in space at the same time for this brief moment. It's just such a great way of, of expressing that moment and, and some of what's going through Kasuga's head and Ayukua's and just them being superimposed is almost like Everything's kind of coming together, I guess. And and it's coming together visually, too. It happens on screen as we're watching. And then we even get this simple shot of the bench as Kasuga wonders what it means that Ayukawa wanted to spend the night. Even after Ishikaru collected Ayukawa and took her home, you get this wonderful shot of Kasuga there. And he's uh, he's just thinking about... I mean, he's thinking about what could have been, honestly. I mean, he's like, so close, right? Wonderful way to end the episode. Really gorgeous animation in the last half of this episode. Some really great shots. 
and really kind of an interesting way to cap this one off. So I'm glad uh, Terar Kenji was back for this one because he's given us some good stuff in these first five episodes so far. And um, I got to say, that's the episode. That's what I got to say. I got to say thank you guys for listening to the show. If you are hearing these words, I want to tell you I appreciate you for being here, for riding along on this show. Uh, Again, keep the feedback coming. I have really appreciated all of the various things that people have told me, the the tips and the... um, the discussion that's come about things that I haven't thought of before different perspectives. It's been really super cool. And, um, I would love for you guys to please leave a review for the, for the podcast. Give us a five-star review, rate us five stars, leave us a review. That would be lovely. I would would very much appreciate that. And also if you need something else to listen to, there's six other days in the week that Abacabo Cafe is not being published. So if you need some other podcasts to listen to, we've got podcasts for you. I've got another show called Shit Happens When You Party Naked. That is a Patreon-only show because, let's face it, it's a little too raw for the regular internet, and I might want to run for office someday if I want to hold some public uh, seat in some council somewhere. Uh, I got to keep that behind the Patreon paywall. But if you go to patreon.com slash team Almy, you can support team Almy studios. You will get access to shit happens when you party naked, as well as all of the bonus stuff that we do, uh, including bonus stuff for Abacabo cafe. We are going to be doing bonus uh, stuff, bonus episodes, episode commentaries for Orange Road for Abacabo Cafe. And it's all going to live there on the Team Almy Studios Patreon. So please check that out. I send merch to all tiers. You're going to get a sticker. You're going to get a shirt. You're going to get something depending on which tier you sign up for. So uh, feel free to check that out. Please check out innercirclepn.com for other Inner Circle podcasts such as The Plunge, Failing Hollywood, The Hood Diner, Simmons and more. Hashtag no offense and the untrained eye. You can check me out on Creatures of the Night. That is my third podcast. I know I do too many podcasts, but says my wife. Uh, Creatures of the Night. We're we're taking back. Uh, we're taking back conspiracy theories. Is what we're doing. Uh, in recent years, conspiracy theories have been co-opted by these alt-right types with the QAnon shit. And you know what? It wasn't always that way. Ten years ago, twenty years ago, if you were a conspiracy theorist, you were just this this weird kooky person you were you were maybe a little crazy but you know you weren't a hateful bigot for being into bigfoot and aliens and dmt so you know what we're doing with creatures of the night we are our our slogan is maca make america conspiracy again make america creatures again and that's what we're doing so check out creatures of the night it's uh conspiracy theory truth podcast we talk about aliens and other dimensions and just weird funky fun stuff and it's all tongue-in-cheek and um it's wild and, and hilarious and fun so please check that out as well i love you guys very much for listening to this podcast thank you again i'm gonna leave you guys with i got something uh i have a remix for you guys that i'm gonna leave you with it's a remix for back in the red straw hat time Here it is.